Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. And this week's episode is one of my favourite, because this week's guest is one of my favourite actresses. She is an academic. She is Dean of the Chadwick Boseman College of Fine Arts at Howard University. Chadwick Boseman, the late, great Chadwick Boseman, was one of her students. This week's guest is also a director, but she's best known as being one of America's most acclaimed actresses. She is Felicia Rashad. And in 2004, Felicia was the first African-American woman to win the Tony Award for Best Actress for her indelible performance as Lena Younger in Lorraine Hansberry's great play, Raisin in the Sun. If you can believe it, it took until the 21st century for a black actress to win Best Actress at the Tonys. It just seems sort of extraordinary to me. But this year, 2022, she won her second Tony for her performance in Dominique Morisot's Skeleton Crew. She's just one of the most iconic actresses on the American stage. And uh, she was so kind to sit down with me in the offices of the Atlantic Theatre in a really steamy, hot Manhattan summer's day. Now, the Atlantic Theatre, if you don't know, is just one of the jewels of downtown off-Broadway New York theatre. Please check it out if you're in New York. They're always doing extraordinarily interesting work, mostly new plays. Just it's such one of those extraordinarily vibrant cultural jewels. But we start off by talking about Felicia's early days on the stage and about her family about her early experiences in the theatre, and about being directed by her sister. Now, if you don't know who her sister is, the great Debbie Allen, she is another iconic figure. She is um activist, a humanitarian. She is a choreographer, a director, an actress. Incredible sort of cultural powerhouse. But she's maybe... And was certainly most famous with me for playing Lydia Grant on the TV show Fame. Do you remember Fame and the kids from Fame? She was the one on the credits every week who said, You got big dreams? You want fame? <laughs> this is an uncanny impersonation. Well, fame costs. And right here is where you start paying in sweat. I've no idea why I didn't get the phone call for that part, because that was powerful. Anyway, that's Debbie. She directed her sister with James L. Jones in Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. Amazing. But we start off talking about her beginnings and how Felicia never thought she was beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Beginners to the stage, please. Ms. Rashad and Mr. Cake. This is your beginner's call. Do you remember the first time you were ever in a theater? Mm-hmm. Where was it? What was it? I was a little girl, and I went to see a um, production of Alice in Wonderland that was staged by a local school of ballet. And I thought, that's beautiful. I want to do that. <laughs> mm. So it was a dance version of... And they spoke, yeah, they had right. lines, but it right, was right, right. really from this ballet school, and they were dancing, and it was 
It was theater, you know, and they were just children. Yeah. But theater is magic. Theater is magic. Theater is magic. And I looked at that and I said, I want to do that. Do you remember roughly how old you'd have been? Oh, I'm going to say that I might have been, I think I was about six or seven years old. Did you share that with your family at the time? Was this a sort of statement, I want to do that? No. It was a secret wish. Do you remember the first time you were ever on a stage? (laughs) There was an operetta called Looking at Pictures, and I was the manager of the department store. (laughs) Yes, you were. Yes, I remember that. Do you remember how it made you feel? Was it frightening? Did you feel at home? Did you feel the magic that you had felt when you were in the audience watching it? I was comfortable. Oh, you were? Uh Uh-huh. I was comfortable. You feel a little jittery before you start. Right. But then I was comfortable. Yeah. I'm so intrigued by your mother. Mm. Vivian Ayres, wonderful poet and playwright. Did Mm. she write plays? She wrote one. She wrote one play. Mm -hmm. Okay. Would you go to the theater? Were you a theater-going family? Would you see stuff? Well, we grew up in Houston, Texas. And at the time, there was the Playhouse, which was on Main Street. And I remember seeing the four-poster by Yonder Hartog there. Mm. He was one of Mom's friends. And then there was the Alley Theater, which was called the Alley Theater at the time because it literally was in an alley. You had to go down an alley to get into this. And both of them, both of them were theater in the round. I studied there when I was in the 11th grade. I'd go once a week to the merry-go-round theater program. So there wasn't really a lot of theater for us to see. Right. And also, even though these theaters didn't thankfully impose it, it was a time of legal segregation in this country. Yeah, those theaters, though, were welcoming. If you just knew to go, you'd go. Right. So how soon after the, when you were six or seven and you had that secret desire mm-hmm. to want to be part of that magic as you felt it when you were first there, how soon did that crystallize into something real, a real practical ambition that sent you to Howard to study? Well, that would have happened at age 11. And that was when I was invited to to be the mistress of ceremonies at a music festival of all of the elementary schools in Houston. Part of that festival was the musicians of Bremen, and we had auditioned reading parts of the libretto. That was our audition piece. And my teachers rehearsed me before and after school for weeks. And we went and I auditioned, and they said, well, they don't want you to read that. They want you to be the mistress of the entire thing, mistress of ceremonies. So this would be the first time that I would stand in a spotlight. This was a new experience. Right. It was in the largest hall at Houston at the time, the Houston Coliseum. I had gone, I'd been taken shopping and had a beautiful little dress with a pinafore and flowers in my hair and ruffles on my socks. Mm. And you see, because at that stage, what a little girl wants more than anything else is to feel pretty, to feel beautiful. Right. And I didn't think I was. I thought everybody in my family was beautiful but me. Wow, really? But this night, in my dress with the pinafore and the flowers on my hair and the ruffles on my socks, I stood in the spotlight. Well, they had rehearsed me so well that though I held the script for the evening in my hand, I never had to reference it because I knew it by heart. Mm. And when I stood, in front of the microphone, in the spotlight, it was so bright, I couldn't see anything but the light. So I just talked to the light. <laughs> I would just talk to the light. <laughs> and at the end of the evening, when mothers came to collect their children who had been performing, I heard a couple of them say, there she is. There's the little girl who spoke so beautifully. Isn't she beautiful? Oh, my and when I heard that, I thought, I'll grow up and be an actress. I'll play in the light and be beautiful Mm. all the time. Oh, that's so great. But what I didn't understand and wouldn't be able to articulate for many years was beauty had nothing to do with what I was wearing, what I looked like. It was communicating from the heart. Exactly right. There is a transformative, you are beautiful. You were, I'm sure, beautiful. 
But there is a transformative thing, isn't there, that happens with that energy you can bring on stage. Yes. That an old person can be young, a young person can be old. As you said, it's magic. There is something that can change our realities if we believe it. Yes. We can make them believe it. Yes. I've always loved that line from A Winter's Tale, which I think stands for all theater. When they go to see the unveiling of the statue, which is really Hermione, who's been pretending she's dead for <laughs> 20 years. Magnificent late Shakespeare, like we had in Cymbeline. He, he didn't care about plots at that point. At he that was point, like, he put everything <laughs> in the play. <laughs> he was like, you just left the car in the middle of the road, <laughs> tossed the keys over to the valet, go, you park it anywhere. Anyway. They go to see the statue, the unveiling of the statue, and Paulina says, it is required you do awake your faith. And I just have always thought that should be the emblem mm. of all theater. It is required you do awake your faith. And we need very little encouragement as an audience to awake our faith. We're desperate to do it, in well, fact. That's why we come. That's why we that's come. That's why we come as an audience. Right. <laughs> to be in that magic spell. That's a wonderful story about being 11. Now, what is it like performing for your mom? <laughs> My mother says, no matter who you're playing, you're always being me. Oh, really? She sees herself in everything. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> she thinks you're doing different versions of her all the, all the time. time. I said, oh, Bob, thank you. <laughs> wow. Now that's, you know, that's very interesting when you take time to Dig into that and pull that apart. Right. <laughs> What's it like for you when she's out there watching? Does it feel different in any way to have her eyes on you? No. 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 You're a pro. No. Your dad, too? Was it, what was it like performing for him? My father came to see anything and everything I ever did. Right. If I opened a door, he would fly from Houston <laughs> to see me open a door. He came to see everything. Right. Was he encouraging? He was always encouraging. Yeah. He was always encouraging. I'm very grateful for that. I didn't realize until I came to New York that so many people in theater were not encouraged by their family, right. not supported by their family at all. I did not have that experience. I am grateful to say I had the support, the full support mm. of my family. Amazing. Your sister, great Debbie Allen, yes. directed you yes. in Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. Yes. How's that? That's fun. What's it like getting notes from your sister? Well, you just have to put that aside. <laughs> <laughs> you got to put that aside. She's the director. Take the note. Right. You know. Right, right, right. And, you know, put that aside. Yeah. <laughs> Was she protective of you, I wonder, when you were in her care? Because no. I guess you are in a... Director's care. No, but she wasn't protective. I wouldn't say she was particularly protective. <laughs> no, she's developed in the dance world. Right. Need I say more? I see. Hard graft. Mm. Let's do it again. Mm. And let's do it better. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what are your memories of that production? Again, with another extraordinary cast. And you did that in London, too, with a slightly different cast, with the great Adrian Lester. Yes. Yeah, instead of Terence Howard, who did yes, it in Yes, with Bre Adrian Lester, right. but with James Earl Jones yes. both times. Right. Now, you talk about a dream come true. Right. I never imagined. He was one of the first actors I met when I moved to New York. Right. When I arrived, he was on Broadway in Lorraine Hansberry's Les Blancs, uh -huh. and he was kind enough to accept us in his dressing room. He didn't know who we were, some young chippies running around. And he let us come in and we talked to him. Well, my friend talked. I listened. Because <laughs> I just was just awestruck. I couldn't say anything. And uh, years later, I would work with him again in the Cherry Orchard at oh, the Public Theater. Gosh, I didn't know that. How wonderful. That was an understudy in that. Yeah. And then to come back years after that. I mean, years mm. after that. To Cat on a Hot Tin Roof every single day, every single night. He was a wonder. It was Astonishing to watch the way he worked. Mm. He would move to the what I call the sinews of thought. Always moving to the what the thought was and the movement of thought. Mm. Everything honest and true because it's rooted in that way. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking into your extraordinary career, your extraordinary body of work, which has been such a joy to investigate. Listen. We hear the delightful tinkling sounds of carefree students from we outside. Because the, the, the Atlantic Theatre, where we are, has an acting school right here. So these are acting students just right. coming out of a summer class. Looking at your extraordinary career, I was just so struck, as I think I said to you in the elevator on the way up, by the sheer bravery of it all. And what I mean by that is you've taken on parts, I mean, for example, Aunt Esther and Gem of the Ocean, right? Who who is written, I think, is 280, <laughs> 280 years old, August Wilson's Gem of the Ocean. I'm thinking of the part you played in Terrell McCraney's Head of Passes that ends with that extraordinary bravura soliloquy. These are all extraordinary things to do, obviously, by master writers, but they're they're incredibly deep oceans to swim in. And it doesn't strike me you're ever aware of sharks under the water. No, I'm not. No. Where do you think that comes from? Oh, let's see. I'm so focused and busy with finding the core of the character, mm. the core of the human being. That's all I'm looking at. I'm not looking for anything else. And I'm trying to find that as I move through text and accept direction and incorporate direction in, because the painting can't see itself. Yeah, right. You know, no matter what you think or feel, you can't see yourself, okay? Right. That's why you have a director, listen up. And so, <laughs> right. and always wanting to move to the essence of what the story is. Right. So the pursuit stops you seeing the cliff that is potentially looming up in front of you. Meaning, if the painting could see itself, you might get overawed by all the different brushstrokes, by how many dots Georges Seurat has to put on that canvas to make the extraordinary impression of the painting. So essentially, it's a craft thing. You're just building one thing at another until to the outside, to this grateful audience, you're doing something which feels sort of death-defying. For example, that Terrell McCraney play, and, I'm, and I'm, I didn't see it. I wish I had. I wasn't in New York at the time, I don't think, but I worked with Terrell. Terrell directed me in Anthony Cleopatra as oh. Anthony at the Royal Shakespeare Company and at the Public Theatre. So I got to know him a little bit as much as one can. Mm -hmm. I found him so fascinating mm -hmm. and so intriguing and so wonderful. But reading about that play, the way it was described was that a really large chunk of the second act is that piece, a soliloquy to the audience, where you are, the character you played is in a state of overwhelming emotional pitch. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yes. And I read an extraordinary quote. You said, I don't feel exhausted when I come off. I don't feel wasted. I don't feel spent. I feel a little buoyant, you said, mm -hmm. to tell you the truth. It's true. But how? Is that an absurd question? Is it like asking the athlete who just ran the fastest 100 meters how they did it? Is there any way you can talk about what didn't seem scary about it every night? I embrace an understanding that I am not the doer. Huh. 
I embrace this understanding. Oh, okay. Were there ever nights, do you mind me asking, where you didn't feel like you got there? I'm not the doer. <laughs> see. You know, That's great. So finding a core, finding what that is, and allowing it to move through me. Yeah. And allowing it to move through me in the context of my development as an actor mm. and my perception as a human being. And there's so much joy in that. I bet. <laughs> I can is. only imagine there how much joy there is. is. I wish I felt that joy more. But this business of bravery I find so fascinating. This jumping off into the water, not wondering how deep it is, I think it seems like, from the outside anyway, such a unifying theme in your work. And I find it so inspiring and exciting and interesting. But when you got Terrell's play, Head of Passes, did you look at that stuff and think, oh, the distance from me to it is huge? Did you ever doubt? No. No. I looked at the play and marveled at the craft in the way it was written. Yeah. I marveled at the language. Yeah. I marveled at the rhythm. I marveled at the specificity of it. Mm. Ah, there is a challenge. But the challenge never cows you. Because you don't necessarily think of it as a challenge to you, Felicia, but more an invitation to this thing that is the doer. It's an invitation to expand. Yeah. The great question I have for myself is, how creative can I be? That's what I'd like to know. Mm -hmm. How creative can I be? Right. Anyway, listen, this part of it is to be continued, but... I always do these podcasts, and I always mean to start off with these very particular questions, and then we just sort of start talking. It is and wonderful. I, and it's great. And, I I and it. that's exactly what I love about it. The yeah. ramble chat of yeah. it is perfect. Yeah. But I did want to start, as is only good manners, with presents. So I got you a little, I mean, incredibly negligible something for you giving up your time on a hot afternoon in New York City when you are, after all, the dean of Howard University and have important deanery to be getting on with. <laughs> well, let's get it straight. I'm the dean of the Chadwick A. Bozeman College of Fine Arts at Howard University. Oh, okay. Well, that's an important distinction, but also that sounds pretty good. It is very good. <laughs> um, so these have a particular relevance. I'm sorry to make you do some... Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm trying to do it quietly so it doesn't rattle <laughs> the listener's ear. Wait, do you know this bookstore? Shout out to Three Lives Bookstore no. in, uh, in the West Village, my favorite bookstore in New York. When we lived here, I was I, practically a shareholder. I was there all the time. So these are two books. Do you know this? Hamnet. Yes. Have you read it? No. So this is Hamnet. Yes. Uh, a relatively recent novel by Maggie yes. Farrell. Yes. Inspired by the idea of Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway had twins. The boy child of whom was called Hamnet, hmm. one letter away from <laughs> Hamlet, Hamlet, his most yes. famous play. Yes. And Hamnet died. Mm -hmm. And not long after that, Hamlet was first performed. So she takes that as her premise. Because we did a Shakespeare play together, Cymbeline. Yes, we did. 15 years ago. Oh, my goodness. This year, Felicia, if Is you can it, possibly believe it. 15? Well, I know this to be true, <laughs> because my son, Iggy, had just been born yes. before rehearsals started. Yes. And by the way, do you remember, do you remember the exchange we had? I came to you. I thought, so my son, when he was first born, like literally sort of days, two, three days old, had a very odd issue. And now he's nearly 15. He's going to be furious with me for bringing this up on this podcast. But I think as a baby, he can, it's fair enough to talk about it. I was desperately worried because he wouldn't poop. This poor little lad was feeding so wonderfully well. He was incredibly healthy. I mean, he looked fantastic. He just wouldn't poop. And as time went by, we got more, of course, you know, you're new parents, you've never done this before. You think you're going to break him immediately. You shouldn't be allowed to do this without a certificate. Um, <laughs> and I, I came into rehearsal for Cymbeline at Lincoln Center with you. And I thought, well, the p 
person I should really confide in, talk to about this is Claire Huxtable. If if anybody knows how to give me some decent, calming advice, it's going to be Felicia. You said delightfully, you said, how's a little boy? And I said, "Um, well, actually, it's funny you ask because we're a little worried. He hasn't pooped. And you said, um, you said, oh, that's completely normal. That's totally normal. You said, there's nothing to worry about. And I felt so relieved. And you said, how long has it been? I said, three weeks. You said, oh, no, that's too long. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, no, 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 no. No, that's, that's serious. You should do something about that. And anyway, he was completely fine. Mm-hmm. The whole thing ended happily. Yes. 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 Uh, he's going to be 15 at the end of August. So this is how long it's been since we were in a rehearsal room and I was asking for medical advice <laughs> from America's mother. Um, so these are books inspired by Shakespeare plays. Do you know this one? This no. is called A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley, amazing novelist, won the Pulitzer Prize for this. It's about an Iowa farmer who desi- decides to split his farm three ways oh, amongst his daughters. Okay. And you know where this is headed. Yes, we know where this is going. And look, I just wanted to give them to you because they're both extraordinary books. Anyway, it was just vaguely thematically, you know, no, for thank peace. thank you so much. With us having done that piece together. Thank you. I look forward to this. Wait. I look forward to oh, this. Good. You were the Queen of England in Cymbeline. I know. Yes. Queen Britannia. Yes. And by the way, I think you'd make a fantastic real Queen of England. You'd win in a popular vote. I doubt it. From the contenders. I'm I, not sure if it's up for election. But, I doubt it. Oh, very no. I think people would be like, yeah, that's what I call a queen. <laughs> um, what do you remember, by the way, of that? Simply, I'll never forget it. Oh, tell me. Uh, what I remember is that it was my first Shakespearean play professionally. Oh, was it really? Wow. I wish I knew then what I know now. Oh, interesting. Because I had the great good fortune to work with a master of the verse at Fordham University. Oh, really? Uh huh. Everything's totally demystified. Huh. Who's that? <laughs> this happens every time. I'm seeing his face very, very clearly. I got it. Got it. It's going to click. Did you take this class? Mm-hmm. Did you take a class with him specifically? While for I was teaching. Okay. I was a first Denzel Washington scholar oh, wow. at Fordham University. Gosh, were you? And Stephen Skybell is his name. Nicely done. Nicely done. I told you. I tell you, my COVID brain is a very serious <laughs> mm-hmm. thing. I had you that too. You <laughs> plucked that name brilliantly from Ether. Stephen Skybell is his name, and he is brilliant. Really? His instruction was such that he had us diagramming sentences. Now, you know about diagramming sentences. No. Oh, this is something that was taught to elementary school students when I was in second grade. You know, there is the noun. Right. Or we put it this way. There's the subject and the predicate of Mm. every sentence. The subject and the predicate. Then there are the principal parts of speech, which tell you where you place the words on the lines. Right. Okay? Right. In a simple sentence, let's say, the clock is black, a line. Clock is an adjective, black. Slash is in between. The beneath the word clock on a slash indicates the article. It's connected to the clock. Right. That's simple, right? Diagramming a sentence from Shakespeare looks like the GM building. (laughs) (laughs) Okay? (laughs) But, But what happens is just as in, in, as in diagramming a sentence, a simple sentence, sensitizes you to yeah, the language. Of course. You know. Yeah. And facilitates your understanding and language usage. Right. I mean, sometimes it's like German. Sometimes the verb is right at the end of the sentence. Sometimes the action word is not until the final utterance. And so absolutely, it can be as abstruse and complex as a foreign language. And, you know, and if you don't understand that in construction, of course. if you don't understand that in organization, right. if you're just talking, if you understood that, you'd say it another way. But the point is, 
is that within scansion, the point is, is the way it falls on the ear of the listener. Yes, yes. And if you understand that and you grasp that and you can embrace that and you can flow with that and you can play with that, it makes all the difference in the world for the listener. How many great Shakespearean performances have I sat through where I had to sit there and sit? And listen to the language go by. Right. Right. You know. Totally. Like you're sort of going through halls of a museum. The stuff doesn't make any sense. You know, the faster you speak, the better it is. No. Right. (laughs) You know, the the Shakespeare performances I love, and they are so rare. They're so wonderful when they come along, but they're so rare. Is when the language is the only way this thought could be uttered. That's the point. When the pressure of the thought requires the dynamism of the poetry to express it. Yes. Right? Did you ever see Mark Rylance do Shakespeare? I mean, I just pick him as a random example because uh, there are many people, but he's just glorious. I remember, for example, a play that's been on my mind recently, Much Ado About Nothing. I remember him playing Benedict, you know, who, who mm. is the archetypal rom-com, the sort of screwball comedy, boy meets girl, the meet cute original happened in this Shakespeare comedy, Beatrice and Benedict were warring uh, opponents until they realized they actually love each other. They're kind of tricked into loving each other, but they sort of loved each other all along. So it's perfect Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn stuff. I'd always thought of this guy as a sort of swashbuckling, disaffected, cynical guy. Mark Rylance played him with an enormous handlebar mustache, and he played him He's not an Ulsterman. He's not from Northern Ireland. But he played him opposite Janet McTeer as as Beatrice, like this very shy guy with this huge mustache and this Belfast. No apparent reason for any of this stuff at all. Utterly mad. And every single line he breathed could only have been said that way. As though Shakespeare specified in the, this must be played by a man with a thick (laughs) Northern Irish accent and an enormous handlebar moustache. But of course, he just made it fit him like a glove with this extraordinary intelligence. He's another artist, I think, who would probably say exactly the same as you, that you are not the doer. (laughs) And when I think of him, he's on stage now in my friend Jez Butterworth's Jerusalem, which (laughs) was this huge, enormous success of a play 12 years ago. He's revived it now, mm-hmm. 12 years on, same part. And it is, he's a broken down old stuntman, uh, like an evil Knievel stunt motorbike rider. And it's an incredibly physical part. He's a little guy, physically small, Mark, in real life. He makes himself look like he's about six foot five with these huge muscles. He's now 12 years on from when he played it when he was not a young man. And at the end of this unbelievable act of pure dazzling theatrical energy, he jumps at the curtain call. I see him bounce. And I was so reminded of you, you mm-hmm. when I read that quote, yeah, actually, I feel buoyant yeah. at the end of something like that. You yeah. feel buoyant. Yeah. So let me ask you, I'm curious about this idea. Mark came back to do Jerusalem because he couldn't let it go. Something in him couldn't let that great part go. Sort of a l- career-defining part, really. And God, I haven't spoken to him yet. I hope to. But I wonder why you have come back to these great plays. Mm. You did. You won the Tony for uh, Raisin in the Sun, Mm. uh, playing Lena Younger. And you came back to do it on TV Mm -hmm. with the same extraordinary cast. Mm -hmm. Sean Combs, Audra McDonald, Sanala Than. I mean, just an extra dazzling cast. And then you directed it, I think, is that right? Mm-hmm. After the fact. So there's clearly something that draws you back mm-hmm. to that play and others. Gem of the Ocean, I think you mm-hmm. performed in and then you directed. It was the first play I directed. Tell me, is there something that feels unfinished about it for you? Something else you wanted to explore? I guess. <laughs> I, um, yeah, there's, there's something else there. I don't know what that is until uh. we begin the work. Right. And often it, it unfolds right in the middle of the work. For instance, in, um, and this is just my way of seeing things, in um, A Raisin in the Sun, there's so much humor in that play. Right. 
There's so much humor in that play. And I think that if you can discover those things honestly, right. it gives more weight to that which is dramatic. Right. Sure. But to plow through heavy drama right. the whole right. time right. is just too much. I don't know a great playwright, a great dramatic playwright, whose work isn't littered with laughter, mm-hmm. right? Littered. I mean, I was going to ask you about King Lear, just because I, I feel like it's a part I'd love to see you play. And I'll ask you in a second about whether you have any aspirations to do this, something like that. But anyway, Lear, I've seen Lears that are uproariously funny. Of course, they're unbelievably painful. They are mm-hmm. everything at once. But laughter, I always think on the stage, is recognition. It's recognizing a common truth, a humanity that we all agree on. It may not be the funniest thing, but in a theater, something extraordinary happens. We recognize that what you just said is true in a particular key, particular note, and we laugh at it. Something that someone might tell us on the street, we wouldn't laugh at. But in a theater, we get it. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the sound of recognition, I always think. I yes. love that about it. So every great play sh- must have tons of laughs. But I'm curious, Lena Younger, for example, what if, what if someone were to ask you to play it now? Yeah, what if somebody asked me to do that right now? What would that be? <laughs> would you be tempted to go back and do it? It would depend sure. on who asked. <laughs> And uh, it would depend on where, and it would depend on the cast. And the way my career has unfolded is it's really quite interesting, the way things surface and the way they come. I don't really go out looking for things. Only once did someone ask me, is there something you want to do that you haven't done? And I said, yes, Medea. Mm. And every time, and, and after performing Medea, I thought, Okay, that's it. There's nothing else to do. And then came Lena, and then came Aunt Esther, and then came <laughs> Violet Weston, and then came, you know. Talk about impossible feats. How was Medea for you? Ah, what I loved about it, the Greeks. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Our translations are what they are. Right. But I had the good fortune to see the company from Greece when they performed, not Medea, but it was, um, I think it was Ephigenia at Aulis. Okay. I saw them at City Center. And it was in Greek mm. with this, you know, translation. I got so caught up <laughs> in the sheer power of it. And that language and the way they moved and the precision of everything. Mm. Everything was very precise, yes? Mm. Very precise. Mm. And then how do you, how do I move through that? So for Medea, you know, what? this is what I liked about Medea. I thought, "Mm, let me read something. And David Rockefeller gave me a book. Because he knew I was going to do it. And he said, here, you might like this. The book is entitled Medea. And it's uh, a number of essays compiled by scholars, you know. And I'm reading all these essays with the Greek scholars, and I'm saying, yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't until I got to the Latin writer, Seneca, that's when the light went off. Uh Because of his use of the word pharmaceutica. In his text, there is the word pharmaceutica, and of it, the same thing. Right. And I saw that word pharmaceutical, I said, oh, this ain't about witchcraft at all. Right. And then I started digging deeper. And I I said, hmm, this woman was something else. This woman was, first of all, she was a demigoddess. Right, right. Who was trained in the temple of Hakati goddess of the moon, goddess of healing arts, therefore the word pharmaceutica, Uh from the age of five. And her accomplishment was such, this is what I was reading, her accomplishment was such, she shone with such brilliance that when she rode through the countryside, 
when her countrymen saw her, they had to bow because the light was so brilliant. And I began to think about that. I said, okay, now I understand this. I likened it to a yogini. I said, this is someone, this is a woman, demigoddess. She knows herself one way. She doesn't know this very human part of herself. She doesn't know those human instincts. Uh, she knows all this other because this is what she's been trained in. Oh, I see. And here comes this man who's reared by whom? Chiron. Half man, half what? Horse. What was that? I started looking at it. See, I go to the basics. Yes, I love this. I had to be basic about stuff. But the one other stuff is just all up there. So when it doesn't mean anything, I have to get to the root. Yeah. And then I said, oh, now I see. She's 19 years old. She's only seen what she has seen. And here comes this male being, the likes of which she has never seen. Rock star. One of the most, you know, the famous Jason. And something else begins to stir in her very organically, very truthfully. Yeah. And you know what taught her how to deal with that? She didn't know what that was. Meanwhile, she has trained in this temple. She has learned sacred knowledge of healing arts. And what does she do? This is sacred knowledge. She takes this sacred knowledge and uses it to further this man's aspirations. She tells those daughters, listen, I went in the sun's chariot. I went all the way up to Mount Olympus. I had my little golden pruning hook, darling. I've got this herb, this herb, this herb, and that. Now watch what happens. She puts it in a pot. <laughs> she puts it, she, and I love the way Ovid describes it in Metamorphosis. He says the mere bubbling of it, the stuff that piled over from the pot, Flowers and things shot up from the ground immediately. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. She kills a ram in front of these daughters and she says, watch this. Yeah. She throws it in the pot and a ewe jumps out. She said, this is what will happen to your father. But you have to kill him first. So what was she really angry with? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, she was angry with Jason for what he did. Mm-hmm. But the real anger was with herself. Oh, wow. Because look what she betrayed, cut her brother's body up, threw it in the ocean because she knew they would go looking for it. She used this sacred knowledge for some petty by comparison. Right. And you think she wasn't angry with herself? I'm finding this almost overwhelming to listen to because I played Jason on Broadway in um, 2003 with Fiona Shaw. Uh, play Medea, and you just put me right back in the middle of the paddling pool that we ended up in for the last 15 minutes of the play, screaming at each other over the slaughtered corpses of our children. I mean, we talked earlier about how do you do that? And of course, the truth is, I don't know now, but at the time, I would go on stage when The stage manager called me to go to the side wings. I come on. I discover that they've been killed. I just have to do it. I'd get to the end of the play somehow doing it. I mean, it's an unexpressible, inexpressible feeling. And I love that about the extremity of the Greeks. Yes. Like, let me just, let us just dramatize the utterly inexpressible. Oh, it's oh, the best. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. Okay, let's, do, let's try and make this conversation a tiny more, a bit more innocent. Um, we need theatre for something, right? I mean, obviously, we culturally, I think we would agree that we culturally need theatre. Human beings need theatre. We've had this global pandemic, which has kept everybody away from everybody else. Strangers have become scary things rather than people to sit next to in a darkened room and see other strangers performing stories for us. I think, well, I mean, I think we want to re-embrace that form of storytelling. But what do you need theatre for you, Felicia? What can't you get anywhere else that you get from that? Community. Hmm. Because theatre is community. 
it sprang from church, of course. That these these were these were stories that were so big and epic, they had to start being acted out even before there was church. Right. Yes, from ritual from and ritual. worship. Yes, that's the origin of the art form. Right. Yes, community, because theater does that. Com- theater creates community. Right. It unites community. Yes. You know, think about it. All the different people who can sit in a room at one time don't even know each other. We'll never see each other again. Might not even notice each other in that moment, in that evening or afternoon, depending on the time of day. But for that period of time, there's community there. For that period of time, people are together being entertained, being touched, being moved, being provoked, being questioned, Mm. being brought to heal. Theater does all of that. Being healed. Because theater is healing, too. It also allows us, doesn't it, to see things, to witness, to bear witness. It's like the way a marriage ceremony solemnizes a love publicly. Mm -hmm. Ideas, people, relationships in the world that you might walk past normally, a theater makes you notice them. And in noticing them, we have a relationship to them, right? In stopping to watch. Yes. Being compelled to listen. Yes. We, We ourselves, like the congregation at a wedding, are participants too, right? It's a crazy exchange that you don't really have anywhere else, except in these very extreme ceremonies of our lives. Funerals, I suppose, are the same. Yes. We have to come together to notice, bear witness. Yes. It's so extraordinary to me, and I'm still so entranced by the magic of it, more entranced, actually. Felicia, I have so, so enjoyed talking to you about it. Thank you so much for giving me your time. I think you're extraordinary. Okay, one last question. I think you're so extraordinary. What about those parts that if you, you only were ever told one person that you had a part you wanted to play, mm. Medea, and I know, you, of course, any, any idea of playing a part depends on who's doing it, where you're doing it, the people involved. But what about King Lear? What about those, what about those gender-blind parts? What about <laughs> those? I think you would be extraordinary. You think? What if someone offered you King Lear? Would you be tempted? Someone, Someone did. Someone did? <laughs> yeah, but I, I couldn't do it. No? No, I couldn't do it because I was doing something else. <laughs> ah, well, there you go. Yeah, I couldn't do it because All I was right. doing something else. Maybe that person will ask you again. It's maybe. But also, it was after I had performed Terrell Alva McCraney's play. Well, the New York Times Review, I think, very explicitly says, you know, that he was reminded of King Lear by you in that part. So when that was offered to me, and I went back and I reread King Lear, I thought, I've already done Sheila. And truthfully, it's more demanding. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Sheila Reynolds. Yeah, I bet. And Tel- uh, Terrell Alan McCraney's Head of yeah, Passes. Yeah. Would you do that again? Oh, yeah. I'd do that again in a heartbeat. Oh, how wonderful. I would do that again in a heartbeat. Oh, how wonderful. Don't these great parts make us, make us better in some way? Bigger they do. Creatures. They do. And, and, and you, we had two uh, productions. We had a production here huh. at the public, right. and we had a production at the Mark Taper. Right. Oh, there's something about that role. And it, it has a lot to do with the writing. It has everything to do with the writing. Of course. <laughs> Maybe Terrell should write another play for you <laughs> and include a middle-aged white dude <laughs> in a small but impactful role. <laughs> that would be my wish. Felicia, thank you so much for giving me the time. You absolute sweetheart. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, there she goes. There goes Felicia Rashad, ladies and gentlemen. 
Oh, I'm so grateful to Felicia for giving me that time and the benefit of this lifetime of memories and lifetime of accrued wisdom. I am not the doer. The painting cannot see itself. I thought that was some good shit. In terms of this podcast, it turns out that I am not the doer either. Um, There are many other people who are. Let me start with Louise Berry at Offscript, my exec producer. Thanks, Louise. To Ben Backhouse, my producer. He's the doer. He's doing the do all the time, and I'm so grateful to him for it. Thank you to Acast for all their support. Thank you to the musicians, Iggy Cake, for writing and playing that theme tune. Also for never listening to this podcast and so not being embarrassed by stories about him pooping as a baby. I think we should keep it that way. Thank you to Phoebe Cake for singing my silly words. And thank you to the stage manager. I mean, a few people have been asking me, who's this sultry siren behind the tannoy? Well, I can reveal that she is none other than rising actress Julianne Nicholson. And I, I for one, think she has a future in the industry. Thank you, Julianne, for that. Next week's guest is the great writer, director, actor, Ethan Hawke. I mean, he is an uncontainable force, Ethan Hawke, and therefore cannot be bound by a single episode. I'm afraid I had to give unbridled double episode Hawke space. So there'll be a double dose of Ethan next week, and who doesn't want that? Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny, but here is stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony, sees plays sad and Stage, 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 stage,